Cannabis businesses, what do you want to know about your customers right now? To thrive in a crowded market, cannabis brands need insights that lead to great ideas. Soapbox Sample helps businesses understand the unique attitudes and experiences of their cannabis users. Visit SoapboxSample.com cannabis to download your free Green Rush Survival Kit. Welcome to Weed Week. I'm Alex Halperin. And this is Donnell Alexander. This is the Weed Week podcast. You can subscribe to our free newsletters, Weed Week, Weed Week California, and Weed Week Canada, all at weedweek.net. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News. We love to hear from you. Write to us at hello at weedweek.net. And we're going to remind you about the Patreon because we have great supporters and they deserve love. You should be a part of it. Today we have an interview with the great journalist Barbara Ehrenreich. And Barbara's an author. She's a political activist. I'm sure you know who she is, but even I, um, someone who's been aware of her work for a long time, didn't know everything she did until I consulted good old Wikipedia. And her um, presence as a socialist in the 90s and 80s was huge. It was actually one of those things that I'd say kept the movement in the in the foreground. But most importantly, she's known for the, the collection. It's a collection of stories. The 2001 book is called Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America. And she, for three months worked some low-level jobs like as a waitress, and she cleaned hotels. It's a great story, pithily told. And um, yeah, and a really important book about what it's like to make a living in America. Yeah, a lot of what she focuses on is, is class-oriented. Having her in the mix at this particular time in cannabis history is actually a special treat. Yeah, so I'm really excited for that. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about this recent report in Leafly on the, the truth about dispensaries. Right. I think what I loved about this thing, and it's super in-depth, it's a real deep dive. Uh, they deserve congratulations for it. But what I found interesting is even I am susceptible to these myths about dispensaries and the impact they have on neighborhoods. I think, uh, what did they take, like 42 studies and, and drilled down on them? Enough that I feel like their findings are pretty convincing. So what what are the myths and, and what are their findings? Well, the biggest one is that public safety is at risk when you bring a dispenser in. You know, the save the children thing, protect the children sensibility permeates the entire argument. What they found is that whenever there is a uh, legalization in the state, whenever legalization comes about in a state, there's a pushback in the form of protect the children, keep the dispensaries away from schools and such. And the fact is that dispensaries are actually improving public health. And um, that, to me, is kind of amazing. How are they improving public health? Well, I mean, you see that usage um, mm. decreases among young people when legalization happens. I don't know if this is actually from this report, but property values go up when dispensaries come. These bans eventually enhance the illicit market. And, you know, I give Kat Packer a hard time and, and Nicole Elliott when she came to Recharge. Uh, that's a really good episode, by the way. You should check it out. Gavin Newsom's uh, senior advisor, we talked about this, but... I call it an um, unforced error. You know, the unforced error, tennis term, and you hear in basketball sometimes, but a mistake that has an impact that could have been avoided. And if you very simply told people, you know, by banning legal weed in your county or your city, you're enhancing the illicit market, a lot of people would have gotten that, and um, it would have affected a lot of local votes at the city council and county level. That's my opinion. Yeah, it may. I mean, at the same time, it's a sort of thing where it may not necessarily get through the heads of city council people who are 
very nervous, you, you know, who very answer very closely to their constituents and are, who are very nervous about their kids and stuff like that. Do you remember when we had Clint Olivier, the Republican councilman from um, Fresno on? Yeah. He, he talked about that 15% or so who were just never going to change. And I believe in that. I think that it varies from county to county, obviously, but there, there's, there's a hardcore baseline that's going to oppose it regardless. But that's 15%. And a lot of people, misinformation campaigns are very successful. That's why we have the presidential situation we have right now. <laughs> All right. So check out the Leafly Report. And now we have the great journalist, Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara's going to tell so much truth, it may hurt you. So just a heads up, we were able to speak with Barbara over the phone. And so the, the sound quality isn't quite where we'd like it to be. But it's such a pleasure to speak with her that we're going to use it anyway. Yeah, we've, you've heard worse. It's it's reminiscent of the Mike Tyson episode, which was kind of amazing. It's um, Think of it as part of the um, texture and craft of this profession. Enjoy. Hey, cannabis businesses, what do you want to know about your customers right now? To thrive in a crowded market, cannabis brands need insights that lead to great ideas. Soapbox Sample helps businesses understand the unique attitudes and experiences of their cannabis customers. Visit SoapboxSample.com slash cannabis to download your free Green Rush Survival Kit. What was your introduction to marijuana? Uh, it goes back to um, Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa? He was a friend of my best friend in high school. Okay. And she and I used to hang around in the um, coffee houses. That's what adventurous uh, middle-class white <laughs> teenagers did in Los Angeles in the late 50s in what year? and the you... 60s. And he, he played blues guitar. In some of these places, and we would sit, you know, we hang out with him. And once after, you know, hanging out with him, um, I was looking in the um, glove compartment of my car, or actually my parents' car, and found a bag, a plastic bag with containing sort of like leaf like things. <laughs> and I said to my friend, what, what's this? And she said, well, it's marijuana. And, and then she said, I'm just holding on to it for Frank. <laughs> and well, that really upset me because I thought that even our proximity to it in the car would possibly poison us. Uh, so I insisted that we stop the car, we pull up to a, um, you know, one of those uh, drainage sewer drainage places by on the side of the road and, and dump some marijuana out, the, out there. Mm-hmm. My friend was doubtful about this. I pulled the car over and we poured that bag of marijuana down the, um, the food grain, which only later I realized it was really one of the dumbest things that I've ever done. <laughs> you were a novice. You were, you were innocent. Is that just how people were? In that era? Marijuana is much more common in my granddaughter's middle schools than it was <laughs> in high school or even college in the early 60s, at least the college I went to. 
Now, we were interested in drugs, but we didn't have marijuana. Uh, we had just very peculiar things, uh, some sort of cough medicine, for example. You could buy in the 60s, um, it was completely legal, <clears throat> over the counter, uh, and it was in a pill form. And if you took two pills, I guess you'd get rid of your cough. Um, if you took 20, uh, you would pretty much leave your conscious self behind. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's the range. Barbara, when did you actually become introduced to marijuana? Uh, you didn't throw away. It, it took a long time. Um, I think it, it must have been when a certain husband of mine and I went to Jamaica for a, a, a vacation. Uh, this this mm-hmm. husband was very much into weed uh, at the <laughs> time, but I had no interest. And then there's something about being in Jamaica, being able to, you could just smoke it like a cigarette. This is great, I thought. What happened after that? You mean, what did I feel? Well, <laughs> were you surprised? that You sound surprised at your enjoyment, but I'm saying, did it become part of your life, or was it just like a, a recreational aspect? Uh, it um, was recreational, but I'm old mm-hmm. now, and now it's medical. But you know you're old <laughs> when you can start calling it medical. And that's what I tell my teenage granddaughters. This stuff is okay for old ladies, not for 14-year-olds. No. <laughs> well, you, you come from a scientific background. Yep. How has that informed your perspective on it? I mean, you've, you've seen pot for decades now. Do you feel, aside from knowing that it's not for middle schoolers, how has your scientific background informed um, what you think about it? Well, I have not applied my scientific background to this subject very much. You know, there's not a lot of great information on this or any other drug because they were all taboo and barred from researchers for decades. Work just didn't get done. So there's not a lot of, you know, data to work with. And so when you look into... You, you want to know do, about do people using marijuana or do they experience less pain from arthritis? That's out of the question. You'll find that the, um, the data is just really thin. You said the data is just really thin? Yeah, because we lost so many decades to the criminalization of all these drugs, which affected science. And you saw the criminalization happening in real time. Were you recognizing what it, that for what it was? In the olden days? Yeah. No. I mean, it never occurred to me. That word was unknown to me. Why? I don't understand. I wasn't there. It just seemed natural that people went to jail for cannabis in the 70s? Well, if you believed what you saw in the the propaganda, the anti-weed propaganda, sure. Hmm. I'm wondering if you have much familiarity with the new modern incarnation of the, the marijuana industry. Well, it's kind of it's kind of confusing and confused. You can talk about California. You've got that part of the country covered. Uh, I I can tell you something about Washington D.C., for example, which I live close to. 
and it, it's decriminalized in Washington, D.C., but you cannot buy it or sell it. So what do you have to do? Well, you can barter for it. Are you bartering? Bar- do I barter? Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm only telling something that I have observed from an objective distance. Okay. You know, people gather at some place announced in the internet or whatever for these fairs or something or festivals where they barter different things for different things. Uh, and that's a, that's an odd way of doing business, but um, maybe a good one. I don't know. But I should say that, and you know more than I'm sure than you wonks of weed weed, weed weed know more than I do about this. But it, it, it's a surprisingly high proportion of um, the weed that's sold in places where it's been decriminalized. It's still sold in the black market. Am I right? Yeah. Hundred percent. It's a huge market. I, I, by the way, I, have to, I only have to interrupt you because the wonks at Weed Week, the, the weed wo- weed wonks at Weed Week, is what we got to go <laughs> yeah. by now. It's Hard official. Say, Thank you, Barbara. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things about the the industry, which which is interesting, is that and that we follow is how they're they're very obs- interested in promoting cannabis to women who are, I guess, the non non-traditional users and sort of the core group of users are, are younger men and they, they want to sell cannabis to women and especially sort of professional women and, and older women. And the overwhelming way that companies have sort of chosen to do this is through the concept of wellness. And, you know, you wrote a book recently Natural Causes, an Epidemic of Wellness, the Certainty of Dying and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. And I was wondering, you're pretty skeptical of the concept of wellness, but can you tell us a bit about what you think that that concept is? Well, the original concept was health, right? That's the word we used to use, you know, a decade or two ago. We want health. But health, that could be for anybody of any class or race. They needed a more elite notion that doesn't include in it any kind of reference to illness. And health has always been defined as the absence of disease. Well, that's a downer because it, you know, contains the concept of disease. So the, the cool thing is to be into wellness, which is beyond health. It's a new level. It's for the richer people, generally white people. And that can involve all sorts of things. Meditation, uh, you know, curating everything that's on all the food on your plate uh, to get it just right. It's it's almost a full-time job among some of the people I know, um, although I try to avoid them to a certain extent. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's a status thing. You can signal status just by walking around in a city with a yoga mat flung over your shoulder or with a, carrying a bottle of a green liquid, you know, which would show your, your 
grinding up greens to drink. <laughs> but it, it's it's a it's kind of a way of life and a display of how um, well informed and well financed you are. So when I interview a, a cannabis executive, which which happens a fair amount, and an amazing amount of the time, eighty percent of the time, they say we're a, a wellness company. We're we're focused on wellness. They, they you can't exaggerate how often they say the word wellness. And when an executive says that, how is it sort of an aspirational thing that they're trying to implant? Or how 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 would you read that? Yeah, it's aspirational. I mean, it, 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 first, it has no, you know, uh, carefully defined meaning. It just means that you are willing to spend money and time on things that putatively uh, make you more well. Maybe that'll mean a a luxury wellness spa in Indonesia. Maybe that'll mean a week with Tony Robbins uh, on some Pacific Island. You know, it's it's a, a very precious, very self-involved approach to life. Surely in California, you know, plenty of people who are into this. I am a self-involved Californian, and I want to ask you some questions about capitalism because I know that's uh, your jam. Um, I, I I came across a tweet. Uh, from a journalist named Madison Margolin, and she said, is it just me or has capitalism made cannabis annoying? This isn't a knock on legalization. Nobody should go to jail for marijuana. But the way it's playing out still perpetuates racially unjust and socially inequitable paradigms, indulges unbridled consumerism and empty branding while only paying lip service to social justice. My question is, is that is this just a natural process of cannabis becoming part of the institutional part of our economy and no longer part of an underground economy. Does it have to be this way just because we're in a capitalist system? Well, I would hope not. I would hope there are alternatives. That's why I think there's some promise to like the, that barter system that's grown up in Washington, D.C. Um, that's not capitalist. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there are other ways of doing things. It, it's discouraging that the the rate of imprisonment of black people uh, for marijuana possession is still way more than it is for white people, right. <clears throat> even in places where it's been decriminalized. Um, and I learned this from another economic hardship reporting project writer, Erica Lagalise, who has an article in, I think, Today's Independent, the London, one of the London newspapers, mm -hmm. which looks at these downsides of legalization, hmm. uh, not from the point of view of wanting to go back to criminalization, but just that uh, some things are not straightening out the way you would have thought they would. The, 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 the racial bias is still there. We grapple a lot with the racial component of the legalization movement. Like just recently, New Jersey and New York failed to uh, 
move forward with legalization. And I'm fine with that, actually, because if it's an institution that ends up with a lot of white people running it, uh, on, making all the money, well, I'm fine. We can stay illicit. My people are doing okay. <laughs> and um, I know that mm-hmm. our, our some of our fans won't like that. But, you know, when we look at these things, I guess I, I came at that last question with a kind of fatalistic approach because I there's this big question I really want to ask. How much of what we call racial issues in America are actually problems with capitalism? I wish I could say. I know it's a it's 52 percent. I have. It, it's just a hard question. I would point out that just because these very large historical questions are always on, on my mind, that slavery greatly um, precedes capitalism. Really. You find slavery um, thriving uh, five, six thousand years ago, way before market economies. Because just the commodity was valuable. You know, you needed, if you're, you know, a king or a, a noble of some sort, you needed people to do your work for you. And it, it, it wasn't so much a racialized thing. The people who were the slaves were the people who, um, had been beaten, defeated in warfare. They became slaves. So there's a very old human tradition of of slavery, and with it often uh, the um, you know the pushing down of any people who even remotely look like those who are slaves. Now, not necessarily. The uh, Romans had Greek slaves. They couldn't have looked that different. The uh, English had, in um, around 900 AD had um, Irish slaves. Uh, the um, Russian slaves were very popular in the um, 19th century, 18th century in um, the Middle East. So it's it wasn't particularly a racial thing. It's just kind of a, a necessity. Since you didn't, if you didn't want to do your own work, which nobody who had the means to avoid it, it wanted to do. One of the things that's really driving the industry is the participation of seniors. How do you feel about that? And how's it been making that adjustment to being able to openly use cannabis? Well, actually, I don't have that many seniors I participate with <laughs> in these things. No, I think. You also have a generational difference. You know, people who are in the 60s and 70s now may not have been involved at all in high school or college or whatever. And it it is quite foreign to many of them. So unfortunately, there's no senior scene that I can point to. You know, here in Orange County, they get seniors full of buses from the nursing homes and take them to dispensaries, and they party all day, or relax. They get wellness is what they're getting. <laughs> oh, they do. Oh, that's good. <laughs> do you you remember our um, the story we worked on in Burns, Oregon, the uh, Patriot story? Yes, and I've always been terribly guilty about that. I know that about you. That's why I wanted to bring that on air. Can you can you give some background for Alex and Hannah? Because I'm sure they'd love to know the story. Uh, it was 2016, right? I guess so. And I was I, I created this group called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, 
which was that to, you know, we raise money. And then we give that money uh, to journalists, to be video people or whatever, so that, you know, we were able to give you, well, a small amount of money to get you to Burns, Oregon, where, well, you could tell them what, what was going on in Burns, Oregon at that right. point. So- yeah, this is 2016. Things hadn't gotten quite that Trumpy yet. I mean, we're talking about February of 2014. Barbara sends me money, and I'll be frank, I, I got a rental car, I filled it up with gas, and I bought a bag of weed, and I burnt. I just, I just rocketed out to Burns, Oregon, six hours east, you know, to that desolate part of Oregon, and I'd gone there because, and you might remember the story. If you don't remember it, look it up. There were these patriots, these patriots with quotation marks around it. Remember the, the Bundys? What's his name? Cliven Bundy and his sons uh, took over this reservation. I'm sorry, it, it, a, a, a reserve, a nature reserve in eastern Oregon, just outside of Burns where Barbara paid my way. And um, they had taken over this place. They attracted so many of these like-minded people, and they were all packing heat. So we're out there in eastern Oregon got to say this, this critical mass of white people that kind of freaks me out, white people with guns. <laughs> and the town was scared shitless. I think, I think you remember, Barbara, the first thing I did is I went to a bar and I sat down with these, these Native Americans and I told mm-hmm. them, I asked them, I said, so if I had gone to this reservation, you and I go out there and we say we're, we're taking over, how long does that shit go on? <laughs> because these people had taken it over. It was weeks. It was weeks that they were out there. And I had to go out there with, I had to go out there, but I lost my nerve, you know, because it was just, like I said, critical mass of so-called patriots. And um, I'm sitting in my hotel room, my motel room, which Barbara paid for, and, <laughs> and outside they're all, it's like, it was a, what do I call it, like, right-wing Woodstock or Burning Man. They, they were just all hanging out there talking mad shit about the media. And they said media like a racial slur. They said it with this intensity. They hated us so much. And that was like the first inclination of what was happening, for me at least, that what was happening out there. Poor white people like I've never seen in my life. And um, just this, this sort of privilege that these uh, the patriots had. The whole town was shook. They had infiltrated the sheriff's department. And so, yeah, I bring it up in the context of this because I wouldn't have gotten through it without smoking pot in my room because it was the scariest thing I've ever gone through journalistically. This is why I feel so guilty about this. Yeah, No, your text I, revealed a... <laughs> I was afraid, but that's okay. I should be afraid, right? Well, I guess so. But As I, a journalist. I had this idea that the now the a uh, and why not send, you know, when a black man out to where white people are acting really nuts? Well, I can think of all kinds of reasons why the answer should <laughs> don't, don't do it. But I just thought that would be an interesting mix, yeah. and that you would observe things that say I wouldn't observe because I've been around uh-huh. an awful lot of poor white people. And you did. Yeah. It was scary. I was scared. Thanks for calling in or letting us talk to you, Barbara. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's our show for today. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weed Week News or email us at weedweek.net. Also, don't forget to show some love for the show on iTunes by giving us a five-star rating or leaving a review. 
means a lot to the show to help people find us. Also, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash weedweek. For more weed news, you can sign up for the Weed Week newsletter, Weed Week California, and the other newsletter, the one I write, Weed Week California. They're all at weedweek.net. All right, I'm Alex Hopper. And I'm Donnell Alexander. Our producers, Hannah Smith and Alicia Beyer, wrote our theme music. Additional music is from the late, great Andre Bush. We'll see you again here next week. Peace. Peace.